Welcome to 29th Floor Sunday School. This is a podcast intended to supplement your weekly study of the Come Follow Me curriculum published by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I'm host Ben James, and every week I lead you through the lessons in a way that is intended to help you better understand the scriptures, make you think about important questions, and strengthen your faith in Jesus Christ. You can also find the video version of these lessons on my YouTube channel, titled 29th Floor Sunday School. If you find these lessons useful, please consider becoming a subscriber. Enjoy the lesson. Hello, welcome to 29th Floor Sunday School. Glad you can join me today as we cover the Come Follow Me lesson for May 11th through 17th. And today we will be discussing the 18th through 24th chapters of the book of Messiah. Well, just a a quick update. Hong Kong continues to do well uh, as far as coronavirus goes. Uh, Hasn't been any protests the past week. So, uh, yeah, little coronavirus, no major protests. What else could you ask for? Uh, My family remains in the U.S. while I'm here. uh, There's not many flights available now. So for the time being, I uh, remain separated from my family. Um, But hopefully that will be ending uh, within a few weeks, we hope. Uh, we will just have to see. Well, this week we move on from Abinadi and what, and we'll learn about the aftermath of uh, what it was uh, that he taught and the effect that it had upon the people that uh, originally came from Zenith. If you recall, they left Zenith left uh, the the main body of the Nephites uh, many years ago. His son King Noah was unrighteous, and Abinadi came to teach the people that they needed to better to do better. Uh, And as a result of that, uh, we learned about Alma, one of the priests, who was converted before Abinadi was killed. And uh, he becomes a main figure both in our lesson today and really him and his family uh, going forward in the Book of Mormon are some of, uh, if not the the main characters uh, that we learn about for for at least the the next few generations. Well, according to uh, Limhi... Uh, who is the son of King Noah, and we'll learn a lot about him later, uh, the, the teachings of Abinadi that really got him in trouble, um, according to Limhi, are summed up in Messiah chapter 7, verse 27, uh, in which Limhi told his people, and because he, meaning Abinadi, said unto them, the priests of King Noah, that Christ was the God, the Father of all things, and said that he should take upon him the image of man, and it should be the image after which man was created in the beginning. Or in other words, he said that man was created after the image of God, and that God should come down among the children of men, and take upon him flesh and blood, and go forth upon the face of the earth. So according to Limhi, the reason that Noah uh, killed Abinadi was because Abinadi taught that God would come down, uh, take upon himself the image of a man, and that he would walk and be among us. Uh, in other words, he taught that God was going to get involved in our lives. Uh, you recall the priests of King Noah, they wanted a God that was far away, uh, worried doing God things while we here on earth were doing men things, and there is very little interaction between the two other than the God would save us in the end. But Benedict's message was different. Benedict taught, no, God cares about us. He's going to get involved in our lives. Therefore, we have obligations to to follow him and to keep his commandments. And since they weren't keeping the commandments, that was a message that uh, the priests of King Noah did not want to hear. And so today we learn about two different groups that uh, result from Abinadi's message, but also they react differently uh, to his message. We, we hear about the main body of uh, Zenithites, I guess you could call them, the, the descendants, the people that came with Zenith uh, that were ruled by King Noah. The main group of them, uh, if you recall, they had been led astray by King Noah and his priests. So even though the majority of them were good people, they weren't necessarily uh, God-fearing, righteous, uh, commandment-keeping people. And so as a result, they were slow to let God get involved in their lives. And as a result, God was slow to uh, provide deliverance for them from the captivity and from the, tru- from the trials and struggles that they faced. And then the other group was uh, those that followed Alma. 
um, and they entered into covenants with God. They welcomed God into their lives. And as a result, God was quick to save and to deliver them. Uh, so again, this, the, this key message that, King, that uh, King Noah heard from Abinadi, that God is going to come down and get involved in our lives, we see play out differently uh, among these two groups. And not surprisingly, it also uh, has a place in King Benjamin's message, which is the message that we find at the very beginning of this whole story. And you know, my view is that King Benjamin's message, uh, the reason that it is put at the very beginning is because it serves as the framework through which we are to interpret uh, the stories that follow it. Uh, chronologically, King Benjamin's message is not the first story to take place within the book of Messiah. Uh, we all know that Messiah jumps around all over the place. It starts with King Benjamin, uh, then it jumps to Limhi, and then it jumps back two generations and goes to uh, Zenith, and then Noah with Abinadi, and then we see here it progresses to, to Limhi, and then it jumps to Alma. It's, it's just all over the place. It's not chronological at all. And my view is there must be a reason that Mormon set it up this way. And again, my belief is that Mormon did so because he wants Mosiah to be the framework through which we view the stories of uh, these people, of, of Alma and his people, of Noah and Abinadi and Limhi, that King Benjamin's message serves as the framework. So it's worth reminding ourselves what was his key message. Let's turn to uh, Mosiah chapter 4, and we're going to read from verses six through nine, which I believe uh, aptly summarize uh, what King Benjamin's main message was. And here it is, uh, chapter four, verse six through nine, in which it says, And I say unto you, if ye have come to a knowledge of the goodness of God and his matchless power and his wisdom and his patience and his long suffering towards the children of men, and also the atonement which has been prepared from the foundation of the world, that thereby salvation might come to him that should put his trust in the Lord and should be diligent in keeping his commandments and continue in faith, even unto the end of this life, I mean the life of the mortal body, I say that this is the man who receiveth salvation through the atonement, which was prepared for the foundation of the world for all mankind, which ever were since the fall of Adam, or who are, whoever, or whoever shall be, even unto the end of the world. And this is the means whereby salvation cometh, and there is none other salvation save this which hath been spoken of. Neither are there any conditions whereby man can be saved except the conditions which I have told you. Behold, believe in God, believe that he is, believe that he created all things, both in heaven and in earth, believe that he has all wisdom and all power, both in heaven and in earth, believe that man doth not comprehend all the things which the Lord can comprehend. King Benjamin's message, uh, assuming I'm right, and this is the core of his message, it is one of salvation, one of Christ coming down through his atonement, redeeming us, provided that we have faith in him and provided that we are willing to obey him and keep his commandments. If we are willing to do these things, then God has power to save us. And we see how this plays out uh, in these two stories uh, that we will be covering today, the story of Limhi and his people and the story of Alma and his people. Now, uh, you know, in order to make sure he's jumping around as much as he can, uh, Mormon starts with uh, the story of Alma. And so in chapter 18, we get Alma and his people. So remember, Alma is probably a very dramatic scene, left the courts of uh, King Noah uh, the, Noah sent his guards after him once he had started pleading for Abinadi's life. Uh, they could not find Alma, and so he hides away, and he starts secretly teaching whoever will listen to him. And he slowly starts to get a gathering, and they meet at a place called Mormon, where Alma teaches them the things uh, that Abinadi had taught to him. And so he uh, becomes this, this preacher, this rebel preacher, uh, former Noah priest turn uh, preacher, and they gather at Mormon, and at a certain point in their teaching, uh, Alma invites them to get baptized, to uh, receive the ordinance of baptism and enter into covenants with God. Uh, and we read about that invitation in verses uh, chapter 18, verses 8 through 10, where it says, 
And it came to pass that he said unto them, Behold, here are the waters of Mormon, for thus were they called. And now as ye are desirous to come into the fold of God and to be called his people, and are willing to bear one another's burdens that they may be light, yea, and are willing to mourn with those that mourn, yea, and comfort those that stand in need of comfort, and to stand as witnesses of God at all times and in all things and in all places that ye may be in, even until death, that ye may be redeemed of God and be numbered with those of the first resurrection, that ye may have eternal life. Now I say unto you, if this be the desire of your hearts, what have you against being baptized in the name of the Lord is a witness before him, that ye have entered into a covenant with him, that ye will serve him and keep his commandments, that, ye may, that he may pour out his spirit more abundantly upon you. You know, when we think of the baptismal covenant, we think of our covenant between us and God. And that is certainly an absolutely critical component of it. The baptism is when we uh, express our willingness to enter into a covenant with God, promising that we will think of the sacramental prayer. Uh, we are willing to take upon us his name, always remember him and keep his commandments. And if we do that, we will have his spirit to be with us. And that's why we receive the gift of the Holy Ghost uh, along with the baptism process. But here Alma teaches them that in addition to that covenant between you and God, there's also a social element, a social covenant, if you will, uh, that we enter into at the time that we are baptized. And it has to do uh, with bearing each other's burdens, uh, mourning with those that mourn, comforting those that stand in need of comfort. Uh, it's you know, very much a social aspect of what it means uh, to be baptized and to be members of the church because you know as we are baptized and as we receive the gift of the Holy Ghost we are uh, we become members of the church of Jesus Christ and so becoming a part of this institution the social element is is essential part of the baptismal covenant it is not just between us and God but it's also becoming part of this body of saints uh, that and together we improve, and together we progress, and together we help each other out and, and strive to become uh, closer to Christ uh, together. This is all done uh, together, which is a very interesting element. Um, and, and interestingly, uh, we don't realize the blessings of these covenants, I think, uh, when everything is going well. Um, but when we're struggling... It's then that we realize what a great blessing uh, the church really is. And, you know, in this time of coronavirus, maybe we're starting to feel some of that. As it's been months since we've been able to meet together, uh, certainly we're, uh, you know, we're longing to be able to be together, to teach each other. Uh, I know in my branch here in Hong Kong, we, we now have uh, Zoom meetings uh, occasionally. We have our small Sunday school groups. Uh, last week we had fast and testimony meeting over Zoom. Um, and it's nice, but it's certainly not the same. Um, you know, we, we do what you can do what we can, but it is definitely not the same. It's and it's when times are tough that we really realize what a great blessing the church is. I, I recall two separate conversations I had years ago with, with two different state presidents who expressed to me their their biggest challenge, the, the wards under their stake that were the biggest challenges to them were those in which everything was going well. They were the, the well-to-do wards because the members didn't really bond together. They didn't need each other. They didn't share each other's burdens because they financially they didn't really have a lot of burdens. But those wards or branches in which the people struggle, in which there are challenges, often it's those wards that come together and are the strongest. Where the, It's those branches where the members can feel the power of the covenants that they've made, especially the social covenants uh, with each other. Uh, one of my uh, favorite talks, just an absolute classic <clears throat> talk, I, I actually believe it's an essay, is by uh, Eugene England, uh, who was a BYU professor, and it's titled, uh, Why the Church is as True as the Gospel, in which he made the following observation about the social covenant that we make, the, the social element about uh, about the church, in which he said, In the life of the true church, there are constant opportunities for all to serve, especially to learn to serve people we would not normally choose to serve, or possibly even associate with, and thus opportunities to learn to love unconditionally. 
there is constant encouragement, even pressure, to be active, to have a calling and thus to have, a, have to grapple with relationships and management, with other people's ideas and wishes, their feelings and failures, to attend classes and meetings, and to have to listen to other people's sometimes misinformed or prejudiced notions, and to have to make some constructive response, to have leaders and occasionally to be hurt by their weakness and blindness, even unrighteous dominion, and then to be made a leader and find that you too, with all the best intentions, can be weak and blind and unrighteous. Church involvement teaches us compassion and patience as well as courage and discipline. It makes us responsible for the personal and marital, physical and spiritual welfare of people we may not already love or even heartily dislike, and thus we learn to love them. It stretches and challenges us, though disappointment and exasperated, in ways we would not otherwise choose to be, and thus gives us a chance to be made better than we might choose to be, but ultimately need and want to be. I love this idea that part of the great elements of being a member of the Church of Jesus Christ is that we are forced to associate, we are forced to care about people that we certainly otherwise would not have any inclination to interact with or to, or to even care about. But it's as we are put in these situations where we're forced to interact with others, to listen to their ideas that we disagree with, uh, but at the same time to express love and compassion and to share our burdens with them and to mourn with them. It's as we go through these processes that we become better ourselves. We don't just run up into the mountains and become monks and read scriptures by ourselves. We are forced to interact with other people and actually put into practice the teachings of Jesus Christ on a weekly, if not daily basis, as we interact with the members of our ward and, and our branches. So, uh, you know, clearly there is a social element of being baptized, and it's part of being a member of a church unit. Part of being a member of a of this body of saints we talked about so much last year uh, as we went through Paul's uh, teachings about how we are the body of Christ and each member is unique and each member is different and each member is essential uh, as part of that body because it gives all of us a chance to interact and to grow uh, to exercise charity and to improve ourselves in ways that we definitely would not uh, certainly seek for or otherwise have the opportunity uh, to do so. Now, uh, as, he, uh, as, as, as members express their desire to be baptized to Alma, he then takes them into the waters of Mormon. And it's interesting that with his first uh, baptism, he also goes under the water. Now, it, you know, interesting questions come up as to you know, why Alma baptized himself while he was also making uh, the first baptism. Uh, and then in later baptisms, he didn't baptize himself. He just baptized people as we normally think of baptisms taking place. Uh, question is, where did Alma get his authority to, to baptize and to establish a church in the first place? We, you know, as, as the Book of Mormon emphasizes that, uh, that Alma did have authority. And later we see that in places where they wanted to establish a church, they didn't have authority. And so they felt they could not establish a church. So the Book of Mormon it almost takes for granted this question of uh, the importance of authority. Now as for Alma specifically, um, in uh, answers to gospel questions, Joseph Fielding Smith said the following, we may conclude that Alma held the priesthood before he with others became disturbed with King Noah. Whether this is so or not makes no difference because in the book of Messiah it is stated definitively, uh, definitely that he had authority. If he had authority to baptize, that is evidence that he had been baptized. Therefore, when Alma baptized himself with Helam, that was not a case of Alma baptizing himself, but merely as a token to the Lord of his humility and full repentance. So according to uh, Joseph Fielding Smith, uh, Alma's, when he went down in the water with Helam, he was not being baptized for the first time, but it was a sign that he was recommitting himself entering into covenants with God that he would do better uh, going forward. So after everyone is baptized, they're establishing a church, and Alma calls a priest to teach and to preach to the people and uh, to teach them the things of the kingdom of God. 
uh, in verse uh, 20 through 22. Let's quickly read through those, in which it says, Yea, even he commanded them that they should preach nothing, save it were repentance and faith on the Lord, who had redeemed his people. And he commanded them that there should be no contention one with another, but that they should look forward with one eye, having one faith and one baptism, having their hearts knit together in unity and in love, one towards another. And thus he commanded them to preach, and thus they became the children of God. So interesting idea that as they were taught to love one another, uh, to have no contention with each other, it is, it is these teachings that make them, according to Mormon's account, that make them the children of God. Now, obviously, we are all the children of God. Uh, you know, we're all created in his image. But uh, according to this, uh, another way in which we become the children of God is as we are bound together uh, through our covenants that we have made both with God and the social covenants that we make with each other in the church. It is through those social covenants, in part, that our covenants that we make with God uh, are strengthened and uh, take effect. So, you know, very interesting social components, again, to this idea of baptism. Uh, you can't be baptized on an island. Uh, you have to be baptized into a church body in order to, for that baptism to actually have effect in order for it to have the impact of drawing you closer to your heavenly Father, drawing you closer, drawing you closer to your Savior, and making us more like each of them. Uh, verses twenty-five and twenty-six. And there was one day in every week that was set apart that they should gather themselves together to teach the people and to worship the Lord their God, and also as often as it was in their power to assemble themselves together. And the priests were not to depend upon the people for their support. But, their, but for their labor, they were to receive the grace of God, that they might wax strong in the spirit, having the knowledge of God, that they might teach with power and authority from God. And I love this idea at the end of verse 25, where it says that uh, as often as it were in their power to assemble themselves together. I mean, in my mind, it seems like, well, I mean, you know, they're just hanging out by the waters of Mormon, uh, getting you know, this little society that they're establishing together, 450 people, not a very big community. They're just getting themselves established. It seems like they would have lots of time, certainly every Sunday, to, to gather together. Um, but, you know, interesting commentary to assemble as often as it was in their power. And, you know, how well does that describe us right now? You know, we meet together every Sunday. We used to take it for granted. We meet together every Sunday, full stop. But now it's clearly as often as it was within our power. And worldwide, it's not in our power right now uh, to be able to meet together every Sunday to worship the Lord. So, uh, you know, we're not unique in, our, in uh, being in a situation in which we are, it's not within our power uh, to worship together uh, on Sunday. But certainly those social covenants that we entered into when we were baptized, as we become a member of the church of Jesus Christ, as we become part of a ward or a branch family, those covenants are absolutely still in effect. And I think we can be grateful for the technology that allows us to continue to meet together, continue to act with each other, even, it's, even if it's not physically like we're used to. And certainly we look forward to the day when we'll be able to meet together in more normal circumstances. Well, at the end of chapter 18, uh, you know, these individuals, by being baptized, by entering into covenants with God, by becoming the children of God in the way that they interact and deal with and love each other, uh, they have certainly welcomed God into their personal lives. Uh, you know, they're certainly living up to the challenge presented by Abinadi as he taught about this personal God that wants to get involved in our lives. And we see at the end of chapter 18, they are blessed because of that and that because God is an integral part of their lives, they are warned about impending danger. King Noah has heard about uh, their meetings, and so he sends priests, uh, he sends his soldiers out to try to find them, uh, to try to uh, put a stop to what they are doing. And Alma is warned, and so the people uh, pick up and they leave, and the Lord leads them to a, a new place where they can establish their uh, society. And then we go to chapter 19, and we leave Alma's uh, narrative behind. 
and we learn about the demise of uh, King Noah. He has sent uh, his, again, he sent his guards to find Alma. They weren't able to find them. Um, and he comes back, and his people are angry with him. Uh, clearly, there's been some rebellion going on now. Uh, you know, largely, it's an aftermath of uh, what's happened with Abinadi. Uh, certainly, 450 people have, have followed Alma. You know, you wonder how big the society was. It's only, you know, one or two generations removed from when Zenith left the first time. So, you know, certainly losing 450 people would have been noticed. And uh, people are starting to, starting to ask questions. You know, what, what is it that we're actually doing? Uh, one of them, which is uh, a man named Gideon, who's a strong man, and he does not like King Noah. And so he's uh, actually attacking King Noah. And uh, while he's about to attack him, the Lamanites are on their way, and he's able to, uh, Noah is able to persuade Gideon to spare his life. Uh, so that he can lead his people uh, against the Lamanites. And the way in which he leads them, it says, everybody, let's run away. And they start to run away, and then they realize that their uh, wives and children uh, cannot run quite as fast as them. And it's interesting in our lesson today, we see that the women and children actually play a very central role in pretty much all of these stories, uh, starting with here. So they're running away. And then they notice that their women and children are not able to leave as fast. And Noah says, guys, forget the women and children. Let's save ourselves. And the majority, it seems, say, no, we're not, we're not doing that. We, we kind of like our, our, our wives and our children much, much more than we like you, King Noah. And so they stay behind and they plead to the Lamanites that they will have mercy on them. And their plan to convince the Lamanites to have mercy is to send out some of their beautiful daughters to... Uh, to plead on their behalf. And the Lamanites are apparently smitten with these uh, beautiful uh, Nephite daughters. And, uh, and so they have mercy on them. And rather than uh, destroying them, they agree to simply uh, take them captive. Um, and so they are brought into uh, captivity. And as a result, they have to give up. Uh, it, it seems like they give up one half of their possessions uh, from year to year. Now, a 50% tax certainly is onerous. Some of you living in certain states might think that's, that sounds pretty normal. Um, no, we certainly don't have details about uh, tax policy uh, in, in uh, Nephi and Lamanite uh, culture. Uh, but uh, it is certainly presented in a way to represent a, a very a burdensome amount. And actually, I, I question whether or not it was actually uh, a, a full 50%. Um, and, uh, you know, wh whether or not 50% is just uh, symbolic in some ways. And as I was preparing this lesson, my mind went to uh, the book of Alma, chapter 20, verse 23, in which we have the story of, if you recall, uh, Ammon, uh, the, the, the son of Messiah, confronts uh, the Lamanite king. He has uh, taught the, the, the Lamanites, remember, he went and cut off the arms, and he has uh, persuaded uh, the, the, the Lamanite uh, king of that little group uh, to believe the gospel. And while they are traveling, he meets, he meets the big king, the father uh, of the king that he cut off the arms for. And a fight ensues, and uh, Ammon gets the upper hand. And as a result, the, the Lamanite king basically says, you know, don't kill me, I'll give up half of my kingdom if you promise not to, king, not to kill me. Um, and so it seems, I'm wondering... And, and I actually have no basis for this. This is pure speculation on my part. But it seems within their culture, this idea of exchanging half of everything that you have in order to not be killed, but yet to be put into bondage uh, seems to be prevalent, uh, both here within, within this story and uh, within the pleadings of uh, the Lamanite king uh, to Ammon. So I wonder if there's something there, if it's really actually, you know, they went through and they calculated 50%. I, I kind of doubt that. I think it's more symbolic that they were giving up a large amount, half of everything they owned. And as a result, they were promised not to be destroyed, but would be uh, brought into captivity. That certainly seems to be consistent with what, uh, certainly that's what they're doing here. And that's what uh, the Lamanite king was willing to do uh, to give up for Ammon, that his life might be spared, uh, even, even though he would have to give up half of his kingdom. Of, his kingdom. of course, Ammon rejected that, and, and we'll get to that in uh, several weeks from now. But I wonder if there's, if there's a connection there. 
Um, anyhow, so they're brought into captivity. They give up half of all they own. Now, the other group that had gone with King Noah uh, had left their wives and children behind. Um, and then apparently they stop and they think they're safe. And they're like, well, let's go back and save our family. What are we doing? And Noah says, no, you don't need your family. Don't do that. And he's like, no, actually, you're the one we don't need. And so they end up uh, burning King Noah. And then they return to see if their family's okay. And they're relieved to see that the Lamanites uh, didn't uh, kill their wives and children, but rather uh, they're simply being brought into captivity. And so uh, they seem to be okay with this arrangement as long as their lives are spared uh, for the time. Um, now, and then we, we turn to chapter 20 and we see about uh, the priests of King Noah. Now, when the group that had fled uh, killed King Noah, his priests were able to escape. And uh, they're, they're now long gone, long separated from this group. Um, but it's interesting to note, uh, as, as we start chapter 20, wherein the majority of the men cared so much about their wives and their children that they were not about to flee. They were going to go and, and risk potentially even death at the hands of the Lamanites in order to make sure that their wives and their children are okay. The priests of King Noah, on the other hand, they're kind of, uh, they're, they're a little bit different. Um, we see in, uh, in chapter 20 in verse 2, um, uh, uh, sorry, in verse 3, uh, that they are ashamed to return to the people. And so they abandon their wives and their children, it says in verse 3. And they do that out of shame. So on the one hand, you have the people that are willing to risk death in order to be with and try to protect their wives and their children. And then you have the priests of King Noah that are like, well, yeah, we got those wives and their children, but we kind of messed up and uh, we're, we're pretty ashamed of that. So, uh, so instead of that, they just abandon their family and then they find some Lamanite girls that are playing in the open and then they uh, abduct them. And, and make them their wives. So, so these guys are <laughs> real scoundrels here. Um, so they kidnap these Lamanites, uh, Lamanite wives. And uh, of course the Lamanites are not happy that uh, 24 of their daughters have been kidnapped. Uh, and so they attack Limhi and his people. Uh, but Limhi and his people are able to defend themselves pretty well. And in verse 11, what is it that motivates them? Uh, to defend themselves. It says they fought for their lives and for, the li and for their wives and for their children. So again, they're motivated uh, to defend themselves because of the love that they have for their wives and their children. You can see this is certainly not a coincidence. Mormon's really hammering this down, this, this important role that, that the wives and the children play uh, in people's lives. And, and I think it's certainly worth uh, considering you know, how important, uh, you know, as, as we consider our actions and as we think about what we do, how often do we think about our wives and our children? In fact, just uh, this morning, my wife and I were, were talking and, you know, I've, I haven't seen them uh, in a little bit as I'm, I'm here in Hong Kong working as they're in the U.S. And, uh, you know, we were, we were talking about, you know, this is what we talk about. We were talking about how easy it would be for me uh, if, if, if I wanted to, to cheat on my wife, it would be very easy right now. We're 8,000 miles away uh, from each other. That, that'd be a very easy thing to do. And I made the comment to her that, you know, honey, I'm, that's the last thing I'm going to do because I know it would absolutely destroy my four beautiful daughters who I know, who I love more than anything. So of all the reasons that I'm not going to cheat on my wife, certainly uh, the impact, the effect that it would have on my family, uh, on my daughters, and that they would never be able to trust a man ever again uh, is certainly very high up on that list. And so, you know, as we think about our actions, do we think about, you know, not only do we think about our Savior and our Heavenly Father and how they would feel, uh, but certainly I hope that we also think about how our wives feel about our actions. Or if you're, if you're a woman, how your husband feels would feel about the things that you do and how our children would react and what they would think of us if they saw the things that we are doing. Uh, so certainly those, uh, you know, for all the wonderful reasons that there are for, for getting married and for having a family, uh, the, the impact of, uh, that they have to motivate us to do what is right, to make good decisions, 
is, is certainly should be uh, one of the one of the wonderful blessings that come uh, from from having a family is the motivation that it gives you to to live up uh, to the covenants you have made to the standards that we hold and to and to be the best that we can. Lemhi's people prevail um, against uh, the Lamanites as they came up because remember the Lamanites are angry because they're missing these twenty four girls. Interestingly, as soon as King Limhi learns about the abduction, he's, he's furious. He's, uh, you know, sympathetic here. Uh, very, very, very interesting dynamics here. They've just had a battle with the Lamanites, but when they hear that the Lamanites are angry because 24 of their daughters have been kidnapped, Limhi's first reaction isn't, well, you guys deserve it, haha, you know, because they've just actually fought a bloody war uh, against each other. But, you know, instead of the blood loss, instead of the anger, he's angry because, yeah, I'd be angry too. He's able to sympathize with his enemy here. Uh, certainly speaks very highly of Limhi and the type of man uh, that he is. Um, but he's persuaded by, by Gideon, uh, nonetheless. Um, Gideon reminds Limhi about the priest, and he says, you know, it's probably these guys that did it. You know, interesting that Gideon apparently had a, had a blood oath that he was going to kill Noah, uh, but he's uh, the, the chief guard of uh, Noah's son. Uh, so, so really the dynamics in, in Noah's family are very, very interesting. Um, but anyway, as, as soon as Limhi uh, hears that someone has abducted these, these girls, he's angry uh, himself. Uh, they've just beaten the, the Lamanite attackers, uh, but they know that there's more Lamanites that are going to come. It was just apparently a small portion of the Lamanites that came. And so they know there's more coming, and they... Uh, so they agree with the king that, you know, we're going to do, you know, we promise it wasn't us that uh, attacked your, uh, that, that kidnapped your girls. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll remain uh, bound by the covenant that we have set. Uh, and in verses 21 and 22, um, it's interesting. We can see how, how, how humble they are becoming, um, knowing that they were doing wrong under King Noah. Uh, verses 21 and 22, it says, for are not the words of Abinadi fulfilled, which he prophesied against us? And all this because we would not hearken unto the words of the Lord and turn from our iniquities. Now let us pacify the king and we will fulfill the oath which we have made unto him. For it is better that we should be in bondage than that we should lose our lives. Therefore let us put a stop to the shedding of so much blood. And I find this moving because, again, they, they've, they've just had a, a battle in which they were successful. Uh, they know... They can't beat the entire Lamanite army. That's that's not going to happen. Uh, but they're hopeful, um, you know. But but they're willing to continue the oath that they've made. And the oath that they made is, you know, we'll give up fifty percent as long as you don't uh, continue to attack us. And uh, as a result of that, uh, they're they're willing to remain under to keep that oath to remain under bondage rather than go through uh, more bloodshed. Um, in verse twenty one, though, uh, things start uh, to turn for whatever reason. Uh, the Lamanites are no longer happy uh, with just 50%. They're increasing the burdens upon Limhi's people. Uh, and, uh, and in verse 5 uh, of chapter 21, it states the following. And now the afflictions of the Nephites were great, and there was no way that they could deliver themselves out of their hands, for the Lamanites had surrounded them on every side. Even though they had an absence of war uh, in these situations, they were not engaged in direct bloodshed and direct conflict. Uh, they certainly did not have peace. And so as we think about our own lives and our own situations, uh, you know, peace is not just the absence of conflict or the absence of, of war. Uh, peace is much deeper than that. And I think as we look at Limhi's people and the challenges that they were confronting here, you know, again, they, they were not getting killed, but they certainly did not have the peace that they sought. And they required that deliverance so they, they could have that peace. I think in, in addition to just the absence of war, there's a concept of contentment, of, of, of freedom, um, and the ability to, to truly uh, follow one's heart and, and to do the things that, that, you, that you want to do, to keep the commandments in the way uh, that you want to keep them. Uh, that is what the people sought. And so three times uh, they, they, they attack the Lamanites then because they desire this freedom. 
and three times they are defeated. They come before Limhi and say, you know, this is too much. Let us attack the Lamanites. And three times they go at him, and three times they lose. And, and they became more and more humble. Uh, and finally, in verses 14 through 16, they finally begin to get it. Uh, and there it says, And they did humble themselves even in the depths of humility, and they did cry mightily to God. Yea, even all the day long did they cry unto their God that he would deliver them out of their afflictions. And now the Lord was slow to hear their cry because of their iniquities. Nevertheless, the Lord did, did hear their cries and began to soften the hearts of the Lamanites that they began to ease their burdens. Yet the Lord did not see fit to deliver them out of bondage. And it came to pass that they began to prosper by degrees in the land and began to raise grain more abundantly and flocks and herds that they did not suffer with hunger. As they begin to repent and as they begin to welcome the Lord in their lives, remember that's the message that Abinadi had preached for which he was killed is that the Lord wants to be involved in your life. As they begin to welcome the Lord in their lives, they began to see blessings. And they weren't delivered right away, but their burdens began to be eased. And they began to experience uh, prosperity. They began to prosper by degrees in the land. And I think that's what we have to remember as we seek specific blessings from the Lord. As we turn to the Lord, as we welcome him into our lives, we, we don't expect to be saved right away. We don't expect to receive the blessing that we're praying for right away. But the Lord begins to allow us to prosper by degrees. And, you know, certainly not preaching the prosperity concept gospel that if you keep the commandments, you're going to be wealthy. Um, I, I think that is a, a, a false idea. Uh, but as we have eyes to see the blessings that the Lord is providing to us, we will begin to see how we are prospering by degrees. We will begin to see the Lord influencing our lives. We'll be able to see his hand in our lives and the way in which he is beginning to bring to pass that thing that we are praying for, whatever it might be. So as we seek blessings from the Lord, again, don't expect those blessings to come right away, but we look with an eye of faith and we uh, look for the ways in which the Lord is beginning to bring about uh, the blessings that we are seeking for. Um, and so they, uh, they eventually covenant with God uh, that they are going to serve him. Um, but it's interesting that they do not, they're not able to establish a church. So as they've been humbled, uh, they are drawing closer to God. They're beginning to see the way he is influencing their lives. They're entering into covenants with God. Uh, but it says in verse 35, uh, but, it, but it says that they're not able to uh, create this church um, because uh, because they don't have authority, because there's nobody that has the authority there. So again, it's evidence that the Book of Mormon uh, is very strong in this idea that in order to baptize and in order to establish a body of Christ, that authority from God is necessary. It's interesting, Alma had that authority, but King Noah's uh, son, Limhi, did not. And while they are in uh, this improved, uh, humble situation. They're no longer relying on their own efforts to try to attack the Lamanites, but rather they're, they've humbled themselves and they're calling upon the Lord and they're welcoming, welcoming him into their lives. It's in this scenario that, uh, that Ammon appears. Remember, Ammon was sent by King Mosiah to try to find these people and they stumble upon him. If you recall, two weeks ago, we talked about how there's beautiful parallels between uh, the story of Zenif leaving the land of Zarahemla, going off to try to seek his fortune, uh, to make his way in this world far away from the home that he left. He falls among the Lamanites. He falls among these, these thieves that are out to get him. Uh, he eventually finds the Lord, calls upon him, and then uh, a, a certain uh, savior is sent from the place that he has left that makes it possible for him to eventually escape his captivity, uh, find salvation, and return to the land that he had originally left. And so we talked about her. There's beautiful parallels between this story of Zenith and his people leading up to Limhi and their eventual deliverance here, and of course the plan of salvation in which we have left 
the presence of our Father, our heavenly home. We come to this earth far from home. We eventually fall into sin. We make mistakes and we cannot deliver ourselves. And God sends a Redeemer, a Savior, a Deliverer to save us and to lead us back to the home that we came from. Beautiful parallels between the story of Zenith and Limhi and their people and the plan of salvation. And so again, it's as they call upon the Lord that Ammon and his brethren show up. Uh, and remember, we, we covered this in, in chapters 7 and 8, uh, you know, two weeks ago, uh, about how, how that went. Ammon shows up. Uh, they originally assumed that he uh, is somebody else. They assume he's either a Lamanite or one of the priests of Noah. And so they bring him captive, uh, only to find out that he uh, may very well be their source of deliverance. So in chapter 22, uh, they make plans to escape. Uh, their plans involve uh, getting the Lamanite guards drunk. Uh, they are successful. They escape. Ammon is able to lead them back to the land of Zarahemla, where they are happily welcomed home after what probably is 80 years of separation uh, from the time that Zenith originally left. And now they are finally back home. If you recall, they brought certain plates, uh, the Jaredite plates that they found. Uh, King Mosiah is going to translate those, and all is happy and well. We now turn to uh, the story of Alma and his people for chapters 23 and 24. Uh, and uh, so if you recall, last time we left them, about half an hour ago, uh, Alma and his people had been warned uh, by the Spirit that uh, King Noah's guards were chasing them. And so they up and they fled and found a new place, a place that, they're call that they've called uh, Helam. Well, the Lamanites went out uh, looking for, uh, for the people of Limhi who had ran away. Uh, and on their way back home after being unsuccessful, they happened to uh, stumble upon Alma uh, and his people. Um, uh, so let's let's first read uh, verses 12 through 13 as Alma is uh, you know continues to teach his people. We see that in the land of uh, in the land of Helam they've set up this you know you, you think this idealesque society uh, in in which you know they're they're prosperous they're planting they're they're peaceful uh, they're essentially living the law of consecration uh, among themselves and really everything is going uh, just fine. Uh, and, and they want to make Alma their king. And Alma says, no, we, we don't want to do that. Because, um, you know, even I got caught up with King Noah and his wickedness. Uh, what if you guys were to have a wicked king? Let, let, let's not do that. Uh, let's read verses 12 and 13. And now I say unto you, ye have been oppressed by King Noah, and have been in bondage to him and his priests, and have been brought into iniquity by them. Therefore ye were bound with the bands of iniquity. And now, as ye have been delivered by the power of God out of these bonds, yea, even out of the hands of King Noah and his people, and also from the bonds of iniquity, even so I desire that ye should stand fast in the liberty wherewith ye have been made free, and that ye trust no man to be a king over you. Uh, two thoughts here that I want to uh, consider. First is, you know, in this story where we are learning, I mean, we just had this story about King Limhi's people uh, being brought into bondage by the Nephites, uh, giving up half of everything that they own, which, which again, I think is, a, is, is symbolic of this, being, of this relationship of being in bondage. Um, so, as, you know, we think of that as being actual real bondage. They had guards set up. They weren't even, even, they weren't even allowed to leave. But Alma teaches his people that, you know, you guys were oppressed. You guys were in bondage under King Noah's reign. And we didn't hear anything about physical bondage under King Noah's reign, but they were certainly in spiritual bondage because King Noah uh, was wicked and he caused them to engage in acts of, acts of wickedness as well. So according to Alma, they were in bondage every much, uh, every bit as much as King Limhi's people were in bondage, perhaps even more so, uh, when they were led by King Noah, and that's because of his wickedness. He had led them into bondage. And he says, you know what, you guys have escaped that bondage. Let's not put ourselves in bondage again, but instead let's uh, stand fast in the liberty wherewith ye have been made free. Now, if that expression sounds familiar to you, 
uh, that's probably because uh, we talked about it last year as we were going through uh, Galatians. In the Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, it says, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. You might think to yourself, well, that's kind of strange that both Mormon and, uh, and Paul, as he's writing to the Galatians, used almost the exact same, same wording here. Well, first of all, let's remember that neither Paul nor Mormon spoke English, so these are both translations. Um, and Joseph Smith, while he was translating the Book of Mormon, he was free to use whatever phrase he thought would best express uh, the, the idea that had inspired his mind, that the Lord wanted him uh, to tell his scribe to put on paper. So it's very possible that maybe earlier that day or not too long prior, uh, that Joseph Smith had, had come across Galatians and this idea of, uh, you know, standing fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ has made us free was in his mind. And so as he was inspired with, with this story, uh, he thought it appropriate to use very, very similar, almost identi identical uh, phraseolo phraseology. So this is by no mean evidence that Joseph Smith plagiarized from the Bible as he was, uh, you know, concocting the Book of Mormon in his head. We have to remember that this translation process, it's not like he took the gold plates and put them in Google Translate that did a word-for-word -word translation. Translation is not translating words, it's translating ideas. And so as Joseph Smith was translating this idea that had been put into his mind by the Spirit, he thought that the phraseology, the phrasing in Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, was uh, the most apt in uh, expressing this idea. Uh, and so he used very similar wording. So you'll, you'll hear some detractors say, you know, why are there such, uh, you know, tight coincidences? Why is the language almost identical um, in, in between the King James Version of the Bible and uh, certain phrases in the Book of Mormon? And it's because Joseph Smith was very familiar with the King James Version of the Bible. And he, while he was translating, there were times in which he thought uh, that phrasing was the best for what he wanted. Uh, okay, so so as they uh, as, as they've set up this great society, uh, this great little community, and everything seems to be going well, um, we're about to be told that uh, things are going to stop going quite as well for them. And, and Mormon uh, introduces this uh, change of event, this plot twist, uh, in verses uh, chapter twenty three, verses twenty through twenty four. Where he says, And it came to pass that they did multiply and prosper exceedingly in the land of Helam, and they built a city which they called the city of Helam. Nevertheless, the Lord seeth fit to chasten his people, yea, he trieth their patience and their faith. Nevertheless, whosoever putteth his trust in him, the same shall be lifted up at the last day. Yea, and this thus it was with this people. For behold, I will show unto you that they were brought into bondage, and none could deliver them but the Lord their God. Yea, even the God of Abraham and Isaac and of Jacob. And it came to pass that he did deliver them, and he did show forth his mighty power unto them, and great were their rejoicings. An important reminder here from Mormon that sometimes the Lord makes us go through trials so that we can have great rejoicings. And just because you have trials in your life, remember I just mentioned, I, I don't subscribe to the idea of the prosperity gospel. The idea that, you know, just as if you keep the commandments, you're going to have lots of money and everything will go perfectly well. Because it's pretty evident here that uh, sometimes we keep all the commandments and things don't go well. Sometimes we keep the commandments and we have trials and struggles within our life. So just because things aren't going well is not evidence that you're not keeping the commandments. And just because things are going very well for someone else is not evidence that they are righteous and doing what they're supposed to do. Sometimes the Lord simply gives us trials so that we can learn and so that we can grow. I'm reminded of the stories, uh, two stories by Hubie Brown, uh, related to Hubie Brown, uh, who was a member of the First Presidency of the Church uh, several years ago. Uh, one involving a current Bush, uh, Elder Christofferson uh, retold that story a, a few conferences ago in which he uh, uh, was expecting a promotion and he didn't receive it and he was frustrated and uh, while he was calling upon the Lord, expressing his frustration, he was reminded of a current bush that he had cut back on a farm years ago. 
He had cut it back because the current bush had gotten out of control and was not growing and developing in the ways that he, the farmer, wanted it to. And the Lord reminded uh, then Brother Brown that I want you to develop in the ways that I want you to develop. And sometimes that might look like a step back. Sometimes that might look like a trial. But if you trust me, if you, again, let me come into your life, if you let me take control, let me be a personal God to you, I will get you where you want to go. And then the other uh, Elder Brown, President Brown story is uh, Truman Madsen once asked him, you know, why, did, why was Abraham forced or commanded to sacrifice his only chance at seed and posterity? To which uh, President Brown wisely responded, perhaps Abraham needed to learn something about Abraham. And that's one of the blessings that trials provide for us. They give us a chance to learn and to grow and to especially learn about us and learn about the power of God, his power to deliver us, his power to make us better than we could ever become by ourselves. And that is uh, certainly what happens to Alma and his people. They endure trials because the, sometimes the Lord sees it fit uh, to chasten his people. He trieth their patience and their faith so that they can have greater patience and so that they can learn to have greater faith in him. And that certainly is the result of the trials that they endured here. And it's, of course, very interesting to compare. And no doubt in my mind, Mormon sets this up intentionally. So we will compare the ways in which Alma and his people were delivered and the ways in which, uh, the, the ways in which uh, Limhi and his people were delivered. Because they were in very similar situations. But uh, one, again, one was... Uh, slow to invite the Lord into their lives, slow to have this personal relationship with God in which he was actually in control of their lives. And then you have the people of Alma in which they had covenanted with him. They had welcomed the Lord into their lives. And so the Lord was, was quick. Even though they had to endure trials, the Lord was there. The Lord eased their burdens and the Lord provided their deliverance. Now, how do they get in this situation? So the Lamanites were chasing Limhi's people, uh, and they discovered the priests that had kidnapped the Lamanite daughters, and they're led by a man named Amulon. Um, and so those same daughters, instead of being, uh, instead of allowing the Lamanites to kill them, Amulon and the priests said, "Hey, let's uh, send out our wives, their Lamanites, and to, to plead on our behalf." Uh, Interesting that uh, these same Lamanites that uh, a few years earlier were going to destroy Limhi and his people for kidnapping the daughters. Now all of a sudden these same daughters, they found their kidnappers and they're willing to enter into uh, an, an arrangement uh, to, to welcome in to the Lamanite family uh, these priests that had kidnapped their daughters. I don't know, I don't get that, but uh, that's what they do. And so the uh, Amul uh, so Amulon... Uh, and, and the other priests become part of the Lamanites. They join with the Lamanites. And then while they're on their way back uh, to the land of Nephi to be part of the Lamanites, they run into Alma and his people. And they trick Alma, say, you know, show us how to get back to the land, uh, to our hometown, and, uh, and, we'll, and we'll let you go. But Alma agrees to do so, and then they don't let them go. They, they place guards there. And the main guard that they place there is Amulon. So Amulon, who used to be a priest with no, with, uh, of Noah, uh, along with Alma, uh, certainly knows Alma, and as a result uh, has no love lost for him, and he imposes great uh, burdens upon Alma and his people. Um, and so uh, we, we move to chapter 24 then, um, and the persecution increases, and as the persecution against Alma and his people increase, they pray harder. And as they pray harder, the result is prayer is made illegal. Um, but uh, verse 20, or, sorry, chapter 24, verse 12, I think is instructive about what happens next. And Alma and his people did not raise their voices to the Lord their God, but did pour out their hearts to him, and he did know the thoughts of their hearts. I love that reminder that even if we're not able to get on our knees and say an audible prayer, we're able to pour out our hearts to the Lord. And that doesn't have to be done verbally. Obviously, there's great blessings that come with verbal prayer, but it, it doesn't have to be that way. Why? Because the Lord knows the thoughts of our hearts. 
And as long as our thoughts and as long as our hearts are pure, our prayers are pure. In other words, our thoughts and our hearts are a prayer unto the Lord as long as we are thinking about him. So we can be praying always as long as we are always in remembrance of the Lord as we are commanded to be. Uh, Then verses 13 through 15. And it came to pass that the voice of the Lord came to them in their afflictions, saying, Lift up your heads and be of good comfort, for I know of the covenant which ye have made unto me. And I will covenant with my people and deliver them out of bondage, and I will ease their burdens which are put upon your shoulders, that even you cannot feel them upon your backs, even while you are in bondage. And this will I do, that ye may stand as witnesses for me hereafter." And that ye may know of a surety that I, the Lord God, do visit my people in their afflictions. And now it came to pass that the burdens which were laid upon Alma and his brethren were made light. Yea, the Lord did strengthen them, that they could bear up their burdens with ease. And they did submit cheerfully and with patience to all the will of the Lord. Now I think sometimes we hear about this and we think, oh, okay, the Lord magically, I don't know, used strings or something to lighten the burdens that they, uh, that they were confronted But remember, verse 13 starts with saying, you know, be of good comfort. I know the covenant that you have made with me. Now think back to chapter 18. What was the covenant that they had made? That they would bear one another's burdens, that they may be light. So as uh, Amulon placed greater burdens on the people, they shared those burdens because that's what they had covenanted to do. And because they shared those burdens together, they were made light. So it's not that the Lord came in and somehow sent angels to lift their burdens up. Those angels were each other. That's why their burdens were light, because they relied upon each other, because they came closer together when they were afflicted by Amulon and by the Lamanites. They held fast to their covenants, both to God and to each other. And as they did so, they bore each other's burdens And therefore, those burdens were made light. Now, it's interesting that this concept of standing as a witness before God is also present in both places. Um, In in, in chapter 9, we talk about, uh, sorry, in chapter 18, verse 9, uh, the Lord commands them after he says that you are willing to mourn with those that mourn and comfort those that stand in need of comfort and to stand as a witness of God at all times and in all things and in all places. And as we look uh, here in uh, chapter, back in chapter 24, verse 14. And he says, uh, and this I will do that ye may stand as witnesses for me hereafter. So there's a connection between bearing each other's burdens and standing as a witness before God. Now, what is that connection? I believe it's that as we stand as a witness for God, we are bearing God's burden. Because what is God's greatest burden right now? He wants his children to repent. He wants his children to know about him. He wants his children to have faith in him. And as we encourage other people to have faith in God, as we stand as a witness for God, we are helping God to bear that burden. And if we are willing to stand as a witness for God, And to bear his burden, of course, he will bear our burden. And what is the burden that we bear? Of course, it's the burden of sin. In other words, as we stand as a witness for God on earth, the day will come when we stand before God the Father. When we stand before the judgment bar. And if we have stood as witnesses of Christ here upon the earth, Christ will then stand as a witness for us. As we've borne Christ's burden here, he will bear our burden there. And as we share in the process of standing as witnesses for each other and bearing each other's burdens, only then do we have any chance of being delivered through Jesus Christ, through his grace. And because he stands as a witness for us, through his atonement. And remember that, remember those verses that we started with in, uh, in chapter 4 from King Benjamin's address 
how it is only through the atonement of God. That is the only way and there is no other way that we can be saved. We need Christ to stand as a witness for us at the last day. And that will only happen as we bear his burden by standing as a witness for him here upon the earth at all times and all things and in all places. So they, uh, interestingly, they escape. Uh, the Lord, you know, whereas the people of Limhi had to concoct a plan to make the Lamanites drunk at night and then they snuck out in the middle of the night. With Alma and his people, as they bore each other's burdens and stood as witnesses for God, God delivered them. In the morning, in the middle of the day, bright daylight, their captors had fallen in a deep, profound sleep, it says, and they're able to just waltz right out of there. And then 12 days later, they are led back to the land of Zarahemla, where they're reunited with the remainder of the Lamanites, or of the Nephites. Uh, In verse 21, as they are freed, it says, Yea, and in the valley of Alma, they poured out their thanks to God because he had been merciful unto them and eased their burdens and had delivered them out of bondage. For they were in bondage and none could deliver them except it were the Lord their God. And so we close with, uh, with this story, beautiful story of people sharing each other's burdens, standing as witnesses before God, bearing God's burden by witnessing of him, and then God in return delivering them, delivering them from their burdens and making it possible for them to return to the land of Zarahemla from where they left so many years ago. It's about, if you look at the numbers, it's probably about 80 years between the time Zenith left land of Zarahemla and the time that Alma and his people arrived back in the land of Zarahemla. I don't know if that's a coincidence, but 80 years is probably about the average time that between when most of us leave our heavenly home and when we will eventually return to our heavenly home. But I hope that we'll see that the, this story teaches us on so many different levels about the plan of salvation and most deeply about Jesus Christ, how he is our deliverer. He is the only way in which we can escape the bondage that we are under, the bondage that comes from our sins, the bondage that comes from the mistakes that we make, the bondage that comes from living in a fallen world. And if we will call upon him, even in our hearts, if we can't do it vocally, If we will remember him and if we will worship him and if we will keep his commandments and stand as a witness before him at all times, I know that he will deliver us and he will stand as a witness for us when we need him most. And I say this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.